Thank you very much, Johan, for praying, leading us in prayer and, uh, and leading us in scripture. And just that list in Johan's prayer of all the conflicts around the world, uh, it's startling, eh? Um, the so-called sophisticated race of humans continues to destroy one another in all kinds of places around the world. We should not forget that, and we should not take for granted the, the peace that we enjoy in this country. This is by far uh, not a perfect country, but the fact that we're here and our men between the ages of 18 and 25 are able to be here rather than in some bunker somewhere or in the bush or whatever is, uh, is a real gift and we should remember that. Just something that struck me while we were praying. Um, <laughs> and you know, uh, probably no activity in the Christian life is more essential to the Christian life and yet <laughs> more discouraging in the Christian life than prayer. If you are a Christian, you know that prayer is important. It's, it's extremely important for Christians to pray. And if you're anything like the Christians that I know, well, what am I saying? You are the Christians that I know. Uh, you, <laughs> if you're anything like me, you want to pray, or maybe it's not even that good. Maybe it's you want to want to pray, and yet you don't pray. You admire prayer warriors. My mother was a prayer warrior. It was no big deal for her to spend an hour or two in prayer every day. Uh, and I respected her deeply and I admired her deeply. But whenever I tried to do that myself, I found that I was an abject failure at it. And, and I'm probably like the average Christian. You ask the average Christian what their prayer life is like and they kind of squirm and they say, well not great. It could be better. They're sheepish, even answering the question. And that's because, strangely, prayer is hard. Have you ever gotten distracted while you're praying? Praying away, and then all of a sudden, like, you don't even know how much time has gone by, and you go, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be praying. I stopped praying. Forgot I was praying. I can tell you, it's harder to pray than it is to preach, because I've never been in the middle of a sermon and just sort of forgot that I was preaching, and did something else, and then maybe you thought I did something else, and then came back and preached. But no, I thought I was still preaching the whole time. I never, I never forgot. But that happens to us when we pray. Even people like John Newton, this is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, who was a real prayer warrior, who was a real uh, uh, deeply pious Christian, loved God. He would say that, that even the buzzing of a fly was an overmatch to his strength, meaning he could be praying in his room, he could be talking to God and fellowship with God, and then a buzzing fly would ruin his con concentration and he'd be off the rails. It's hard to pray, it seems, but Jesus says that we should pray. In uh, verse 5, he says, and when you pray, he actually assumes that we will pray, and therefore prayer is not something for super spiritual people. It's not for just the ministers or the priests or, or the theologians and the seminary professors or, or the very, very pious people uh, who have lots of time for devotions in the course of their day. You know, when you're retired and you, you can just sit on your porch and, and spend hours with God. No, it's not just for people like that. It's for regular people like you and me and young people, kids, 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you love him, prayer is something that you are expected to do. And Jesus assumes that it's something that you do. You don't just depend on your parents to pray. Every time they pray and make you pray, then you pray. No, it's supposed to be part of the warp and woof of our entire lives. We are in the series here on the Sermon on the Mount. And within this series of the Sermon on the Mount, we get the Lord's Prayer. And what we're going to do is like a a little mini-series within a series on the Lord's Prayer. And it's a good idea to do that, to do a bit of a deep dive in it. Because uh, the Lord's Prayer has, for many centuries, been used by the church to disciple people in the Christian faith. If you are new to the Christian faith, there were three things that, that church leaders would teach you. They would teach you uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, the law, right? They would teach you the Apostles' Creed so you would understand the theology, the basic biblical doctrines of the Christian faith, and then they would teach you the Lord's Prayer and what it means to pray the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to do a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer for a few weeks, not to guilt you, okay, but hopefully to inspire you and inspire me to redouble my efforts at prayer and redouble your efforts in prayer because it's when it's something that becomes part of the the daily rhythms of your life you will experience incredible changes and transformations in who you are and i'm going to talk more about that in the coming weeks what we're going to look at just today is we're going to look at sort of the prerequisites for prayer these are the foundational things that if you're going to be someone who prays who who is in that kind of communication Uh, with God and you have that relationship with God if you're going to do that these are the three sort of foundational things that that you got to have in place and they come to us from this text the first one is this if you're going to have a deep and powerful prayer life you've got to have the right motivation what's the right motivation the right motivation is this you need to want to know God when you pray you need to want to spend time with him because of who he is. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay. Jesus is saying here, remember we talked about this last week, the hypocrite. What, what a hypocrite was it? A hypocrite was a, a Greek actor who wore a mask and their job was to, to play parts. Well, understand something. A hypocrite is not someone <clears throat> who, who does one thing but feels another thing. A hypocrite is someone who does one thing but believes another thing. And this is an important distinction because I've been hearing in the, in the chatter among the Christian community lately is, is one of the things we really want to see in one another is authenticity. We want to be genuine. We want to be authentic. We want to be truthful. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be artificial, right? That's a bad thing and I, I completely understand. But, but when someone says, you know, how can I stay married when I'm in a relationship with someone that I don't love? That's not authentic. That's not authentic. That would be hypocritical. The biblical response to that is no. That's not hypocrisy. That's fidelity. 
If you say, well, I don't, really, I don't really think it's a good idea for me to go to church if I don't want to be there. I mean, it's a bad thing to go to church when you don't want to be there because then you're not really being honest with God. You're being a hypocrite. And the truth is, no, that's faithfulness. Or if you say, I don't really want to pray. So when I do pray, it feels, it feels hypocritical. It feels inauthentic. No, no, no. You got to understand, it's not wrong to do the right thing even when you don't want to do it. What that's called is not hypocrisy, it's called maturity. A hypocrite is not someone who does the right thing despite how they feel. No, no, no. That's a, a mature believer who does what he or she knows God wants from them, even if they have to be honest and say, right now my heart isn't really in it, but I'm doing it anyway. That's maturity. Hypocrisy is believing one thing in your heart, but behaving in another way. And here the hypocrisy is that, that, uh, that publicans or, or the Pharisees or, or the leaders were praying in public to be seen by others. What is prayer? Communication with God, right? Why are you concerned about other people seeing you communicate with God? This is supposed to be between you and him and you're making it between you and someone else. You know, in Luke 18, there's a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they both go up to pray at the temple. And the Pharisee gets real close to the temple, and he starts praying, Oh, Lord, I praise you and thank you that I am not like other people. He's got one eye open, looking at the guy in the corner. I'm not like other people like that guy. And he prays really loud so that everybody can hear him pray. He is a great prayer. <laughs> but his audience is not God. His audience are the people around him. You know, in, in verse 6, Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. That word room, you could probably better transit, translate it closet. And here's why. Think about this. I mean, we have houses with multiple rooms. So everybody, if you want some privacy, go to your bedroom, that kind of thing, right? Except if you have toddlers, there's really only one room in the house where you might get a little bit of privacy, right? There's a good chance that that's the room Jesus is talking about here. And he says, go into that room, close the door, and pray to whom? To your Father who is unseen. This is hard especially in today's day and age. Pray to your Father who is unseen. I've talked about this before, right? We live in, a, in an era that is what's called disenchanted. Since the Enlightenment movement a number of centuries ago, we have pushed God further and further to the margins so that today we have a very hard time even thinking in, in ways that allow for a reality to exist beyond what we can see with our physical eyes. So as a culture, all that is is what we can see in front of us with our physical eyes. There's no spiritual realm. There's, and therefore, the culture itself does not help cultivate God awareness in us. 
You know, in the, in the Middle Ages, I'm not saying that life was better in the Middle Ages, but uh, they did at least understand that, that God was present and there was a spiritual realm. Now, sometimes it got a little funky and they thought there were fairies and they thought there were uh, leprechauns and they thought there were all kinds of like little sprites and stuff like that living in the trees and they had to watch out for them and that kind of thing. But, but the reality is, friends, we live in a world where we don't even have our eyes open to the fact that God is here and God is doing things. Let me give you just a simple, very simple illustration. This past Monday, session met for a marathon meeting. We always do devotions, and I always, I'm, we're working through a book uh, of devotionals by Abraham Kuyper right now. And I just pick the next one, and we read. So as people are gathering, we have conversations before everybody arrives, and we're just talking and stuff, and one of the, one of the, uh, elders was just talking about a difficult situation that they were wrestling with, etc. It was pretty heavy stuff, and we were like, oh man, that's tough, brother. And everybody sits down, I say, okay, let's uh, do devotions. And I, I flipped open the book, and I missed the one that we were supposed to do. And I went like three pages further. But I wasn't really paying attention, so I just opened it, and I started reading it. And I tell you, there was chills down our spines as we read this devotional that spoke directly to that elders struggles it was a little bit freaky that is not coincidence guys do you believe that god sees you do you really believe that god sees you it is in a way it's easy to pray in front of others because at least you know they're listening probably but in secret is he listening to you it takes it takes faith now note Jesus says, then your father, this is still verse 6, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, God sees what you're doing in secret when you have no other eyes on you but his. They're still there. They're on you. You have no secrets from God. Whether you believe in his existence and think he's there or not. If you're here and you're not a Christian... You don't really think about God. You're wondering whether there is a God. Or maybe you don't really care to wonder whether there is a God. But you, you don't live as though there's a God. Please understand something. God knows absolutely everything about you. Everything. Because there's not a single secret you can keep from him. Now, probably that terrifies us a little bit, right? I remember being a kid and hearing the song and singing the song. Oh, be careful, little eyes. No, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father above is looking down in... Love? Really? So be careful, little uh, arms, what you do. I thought of God, like, being up there with his lightning bolt, ready to bring the smack down on me if I got out of line. That's what I thought it meant to have God who is unseen looking down upon me. But listen, as I became a little more grown up in my understanding of my relationship with God, I came to, under, to realize that, that it is astounding to think that God would know absolutely everything about me. I keep no secrets from him at all, and he still wants to hear from me. You, you keep secrets from each other, don't you? Like if you're married, 
That's that one person who's supposed to know absolutely everything about you? Come on. Do they know absolutely everything about you? I think that would be unkind if every wicked, evil, twisted thought that popped into your head you felt you needed to tell your spouse. Don't you ever think things that you say to yourself, how did that get in there? Get out! I can't believe I thought that. Where's that from? Come on, I'm not the only one who's got this problem. And here's God saying... I know about that crazy thought that popped into your head, and yet, I want to hear you. I want to be in communion with you. I want, to, I want you to unburden yourself to, to me. You know, I'm going to make a couple of parental illustrations, and I don't want to leave out the non-parents here, but, but this is about God as our Father, so it's legitimate. Parents know their kids. Their kids think they don't. <laughs> Especially when they're teenagers. You don't understand me at all. Well, actually, they know them probably better than they know themselves often. So you know your kid. If you're in tune with your kid, you, 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 you can tell when they're off. When something's bothering them. When, when something's eating at them. And if you're a wise parent, so if you're Jessica, you pick the right time and you say, What's up? You okay? And all of a sudden, the kid just like, bleh. It all starts to come out. They're not stuffing it. They're not avoiding it. They're not bottling it up. They're just spilling it out to, before you because they know that you know them and that you care for them. God sees what is done in secret. He knows you better than your moms and dads have ever known you. And he delights in having you spill your guts to him. Don't you want to be with someone like that? That's why the, the first thing is the motive needs to be to want to know him. We, we do lots of things in our Christian life that other people will see. We give, we serve, you know. But nobody sees us in secret prayer. There's nobody there to reward that, to praise you for that. The only benefit to praying in secret prayer is knowing that your heavenly Father is there listening to every word. He's hanging on every syllable. So that's the first thing. What else do you need to, to have? You, have? you have to know that this relationship that you have with your God as your Father is based entirely on grace. Verses 7 and 8. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, that word pagan, you could translate that word Gentile as well. The idea was anyone who did not know the true and living God prays differently than a Christian does. And prayer, if you look around the world's religions, prayer is common in pretty much all of them. But how do they practice prayer? Jesus says that they babble. The word there is, you know what an onomatopoeia is? Right? Like a word that sounds like what it's describing, like crunch, smack. That's an onomatopoeia. Oink. <laughs> sounds sort of like, well, it's supposed to be an onomatopoeia. Jesus is saying that these people are repeating themselves over and over and over again, just babbling on and on, trying to get God's attention. 
thinking that through their energized prayer, saying the prayers over and over again, saying them with, with extra vigor and fervor, saying them loudly, saying them while you're sweating, saying them in the right body position, they'll somehow get his attention. The best example of this is in the Old Testament where Elijah at Mount Carmel versus the prophets of Baal, right? And they're wailing and they're jabbering on and on and they're yelling as loud as they can because they're trying to manipulate Baal. They're trying to kind of get him locked up and, and, and forced him to, to do the things that they want from him. Ritual is everything in this kind of prayer. That's why Jesus says they think they'll be heard by their many words. If I say enough, if I do it the right way, if I work very intensely at it, God has to hear me and he has to answer. That's the thinking. In other words, spiritual performance is the basis of the relationship. How well you pray, how hard you pray. That's what Baal's prophets were doing. And you see this in some, some of the world's religions. You, in Islam, if you say the right words in the right direction, at the right time, your prayers will be answered. But you don't just see this in other religions. You see this sometimes even in the Christian faith. We do this. We fall into this. You, you can go to a, a church which has very high liturgy, high church, you know, where there's lots of readings and stuff, and the, the minister just blasts these readings, and just by saying them, something's happening, and nobody's really listening, and the the, the leader, the priest, or the minister actually doesn't seem all that engaged by what they're reading themselves. But then you can see this happening in low churches too, where they don't have any liturgy, but there's a lot of just, Lord, we just, we just, we just, Lord, we just, 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 just. Please, Lord, hear us. We just, using titles and stock phrases and asking for heads or hedges of protection and stuff and not really, really engaging the mind deeply. This can happen to all of us in all our circumstances. So we, we can't just say, oh, yeah, you know, those people from other religions, they don't know how to pray. We do it right. We do it wrong even though we know how to do it right. It's supposed to be based on your relationship with God as your father. God is not a boss, okay? He's a father. A boss expects performance from you. A father can expect performance from you too. But, but, a father reacts differently when your performance fails. A boss fires you or puts you, gives you a citation and puts it in your permanent record. What does a father do? He embraces you. He tells you he loves you. He forgives you when you fail. And, and he says to you, by my power, I'm going to, I'm going to lead you to, to try again based on that commitment. You don't have to impress God, and he's not deaf. He wants to hear what you have to say. Go back to the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal spend all day praying to Baal. Come on. Come on. Bring down the fire. Oh, Baal, bring down the fire. And when they're finally exhausted and they can't do any more, Elijah says, okay, my turn. And here's his prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. 
Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning your hearts, their hearts back again. Boom. Notice he starts with the God of Abraham, Israel, and Isaac. This is the covenantal God. He's basing his prayer on his relationship with God. God, you're the one who came to our people and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm calling out to you based upon that. If you are a child of God, if you have put your trust in him, if you have said to Jesus, I believe that you lived for me and died for me, then you are a child of God. He is your father. Shoot straight with him. Prayer isn't a formula. It's not an incantation. It's not a recipe. It's, it's, it's a relationship, right? And what does he say? What does Jesus say? He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And you're like, why? Well, why do I have to ask him then? If he knows what I need before I ask him, why? Well, let's, let's try to think about this like parents again. Let's say your young child is doing something and it's not going very well. Let's say they're, they're building a fort in the basement with the cushions of the couch. Any kids ever do that? Sure, right? And they're trying to make a roof and they're using cushions and the cushions are meeting one another in the middle and they keep falling in and they try it this way and they try it that way and they keep falling in they keep falling in and you know what they need they need blankets blankets are the key to the roof of your fort and so your mom or dad you know you go to the hall closet and you go and you get out the blankets and you set them down and you just sit there at the top of the stairs waiting and finally you hear Yes, son. I need you! I'll be right there. You pick up the blankets and you walk downstairs. No, oh, my fort won't work and then the ceiling keeps falling in and Tommy says that I'm the one who's doing it and it's my fault, but I know it's his fault because he doesn't know how to use these pillows and you just say, listen, 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 guys. I think I know what you need. Try it with these blankets. And the kids say, oh, thanks. And they put it up and they do it. You knew well before they did what they needed, but you waited for them to call. Why? To remind them of their dependence on you, to give them the time to, to come to the end of themselves, failing and failing and failing and failing till they finally said, I'm failing. This is stupid. I should go get help. See, our problem, friends, the reasons we don't pray as much as we do is because we think we got this most of the time. We got it under control. Why is it that your prayer life all of a sudden hits 100 when you're in a crisis and you know you can't do it because you're living with the illusion 90% of the time that you can do it even though you're dependent on every breath you take from your Heavenly Father? Go to him knowing that he loves to answer your prayers. That you're dependent on him entirely. Okay, one more. So, your relationship is based on grace, not on performance. You don't have to prove anything to God. You just go him as your needy self. And you go to him as your heavenly father because you delight in him and you delight in his delight of you. And the third thing is... You need to know you've been forgiven. This is where verses 14 and 15 come in. 
If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, doesn't it seem like this, those verses are kind of out of place? Jesus says, when you pray, do all this stuff, and then he gives the Lord's Prayer. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about the importance of forgiveness and saying, you know, if you can't forgive, you won't be forgiven. What's this all about? Jesus says the motivation for prayer is that God is your heavenly Father who loves you by grace, right? Well, what is it that he has done to become your heavenly Father that loves you by grace? He's forgiven your sins. See, God is a righteous judge. And when he sees all of you, what he sees in all of you and me is sin. He sees how bad it is. He sees how we hurt one another. How we will seek our own pleasure at the expense of one another. Just think about the horrors of something like human trafficking. Where human beings are literally enslaved and used as playthings of those in power. And we call ourselves homo sapiens. You know what that means. It's supposed to mean wise one. This is what we do to each other. You don't do this yourself, but this is what human beings do. This is what we are like. And God sees it all. He sees human cruelty. He sees human indifference to human cruelty. He sees human ruthlessness. He sees all the evil, and he is a good judge. And because he's a good judge, he cannot turn a blind eye to what he sees. You wouldn't want him as your God, if he wasn't perfectly just and perfectly righteous. The problem is, is that if he's going to be perfectly just and perfectly righteous, he's going to have to nail those human traffickers, which is fine by us, but he's got to nail us too. He's got to judge sin. John Stott puts it this way. He says, Every time you look at the cross... Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary, it is there at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. See, rather than judge us, Jesus came and took that judgment for us. We deserve death, but when you know that we deserve death, when it sinks into you that, that when Jesus is on the cross saying, I'm here because of you, he's also at the exact same time saying, I'm here because I love you. Your sin put him on that cross, but he was willing to be on that cross for you. And see, the test of you understanding that is how forgiving you are towards others. Because you see, if you hold a grudge against someone, if you can't or won't forgive another person, you're essentially saying, I would never do anything like that. You're looking down on them. It's arrogance, it's pride, it's Satan's sin. 
you haven't been humbled by the cross. But if you have been humbled by the cross, then you, you can't hold a grudge against anyone. You can't look down at anybody else because you see Jesus there dying for you. If you were the only sinner on the planet, that still would require the death of his son. And you say, well, really you've got to forgive everyone? I don't know of any limits that Jesus has placed on forgiveness. Do you? Many of you are aware of a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. She wrote The Hiding Place. Some of you maybe read it last winter with Jessica. In this book, she says something incredible. It's, it's struck me, I don't know how many times. L listen to what she says. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl that the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Those of you who have enemies that you're struggling to forgive right now and saying, Paul, I can't do it. What Corey Ten Boom realized is that she couldn't do it either. But the promise that God gives us is that what we can't do, he can and the way into allowing him to do that in you and through you is for you to see him dying in your place. Willingly. Openly. Full of love. Let's pray. Father, teach us to shoot straight with you because you are our Father who loves us, knows us, cares for us. Help us, Father, to, to forgive others as well. And you can only do that as you forgive us. 
thank you that we can pray to you. Thank you that you want to hear us. Help, help us want to talk to you. We are so sorry for the fact that oftentimes we don't really want to talk to you or we don't think we need to talk to you. Cure us of our pride. Remind us of our dependence. And reveal yourself to us as we pray to you, as the God who loves, the God who delights to have your children just spill their guts to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.